Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is episode 69, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Serena Miller, who is an award-winning author, and she is going to talk about her life journey and the types of books that she's written. And she's been a very prolific writer, but started very late in, in her career, so to speak. Serena, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. This is such a pleasure for me to speak to you. I, I've I've only read two of your numerous books that you're going to talk about, uh, but they were both Amish-related. Uh, one was talking about the education of the Amish, and then one was, one was talking about Amish parenting. And I've taken a lot of valuable lessons from those things into trying to apply them to my family. So, I first of all, it's wanted, wonderful to hear. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you told me that. Yeah, I wanted to share the personal gratitude because <laughs> you're right. The word wisdom in one of the book titles, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is very apropos to, to what we're trying to do here. So thank you for that. Uh, if you could, Serena, give a, for the audience, if you can give a little, little bit of background where you grew up in Ohio, what, what type of family environment you had, and, and then we'll kind of take it from there. some valuable takeaways you had from that type of childhood growing up that you that you still apply today? How much you can achieve by working hard. Um, I, I, I think 
never dirty. Um, Mom worked. I guess the joy that my mother left her life with would be one of the things. And, for instance, we had to bring, if she was going to do a laundry, we would have to carry buckets of water up over a creek bank and put it in the ringer washer that Dad had strung a electric light to, or electric um, electric cord to, and we would wash outside, and uh, it, it, it was laborious, and yet it was so very, very uh, fun, because my mom made everything fun, and so wash day was a happy day, and I guess I guess you can always see things with a different perspective. Some people would have considered that drudgery. My mom considered it fun, and she made it fun for us as well. The other thing that was um, very important to me was my mother and father's education. Uh, My father had an eighth-grade education, but, and again, this folds into my understanding of the Amish, uh, as one Amish school teacher told me, even though we only educate in school up to the eighth grade, that does not mean that our education never stops. And I would say that would describe my father. He was immensely curious. He loved to read. He was interested in the natural world, and he passed all that on to us. I know a great deal about um, the outdoors, plants, um, medicinal uh, plants, um, how to survive. Dad knew all that and taught that to us. Uh, and then I have one of my most precious pictures is one that I just found recently in one of my sister's um, things. She passed away recently. It was a picture, a snapshot of me sitting on my father's lap. And he, I'm about 18 months old. And uh, it's on the couch, and he's reading to me. He was always reading to me, whether I understood it or not. So at 18 months old, he was reading uh, Birth of a Nation. <laughs> I think that was the name of it, something like that. It was way inappropriate for uh, for an 18-month-old. But it was sitting on Daddy's lap while he pointed at the words that made me absolutely fall in love with with reading and uh, with writing. And, of course, they were storytellers. We didn't have a television until I was much, much older. And so there was a lot of time spent on the porch just listening to the old people talk about things and tell stories. And one of my favorite storytellers in my family was my Uncle Harvey. Uh, He was the best one of all. He could really hold your attention. But he had a saying. He always said, if a story's worth telling, it's worth exaggerating. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that may have applied into my um, my fiction writing somewhat. So uh, it wasn't perfect, but it was it was rich and good. And I'm I'm very grateful for it because again, it helped me understand the Amish more. Now, also, my mother was a churchgoer, and there was a little one room white clapboard church up the road from us where it was basically a family reunion every time we got together on Sundays because I was related uh, to pretty much everybody in that church building. And it was um, it was actually had Anabaptist roots, which of course is we came from the same roots as what the Amish did. And so a lot of the um, theology that the Amish have, I may not agree with all of it, but I understand where it comes from. And I, I, I saw the the photo that you were referencing with your father and you on the on the couch on your website, which yes. which sounds like it was a great foundation for you know, along with the stories that you heard about becoming an author. Talk about what I would call the creative producing side that you reference on your website with your mother and and, and making 
creating your own books. Can you speak to that? Oh, oh, I've forgotten about that. Again, we had no television. And uh, Mom um, actually uh, had graduated from high school. She'd been valedictorian. And um, she, she didn't have a whole lot to work with, but she was creative. And so when I would be, I remember one time in particular when I was ill, and I was probably about five years old. I hadn't started this school yet. And um, she, again, she didn't have a lot to work with, but what she did that day, we spent the whole day uh, writing a book. And she used old wallpaper and cut the little book out of that, and then she used some thread and a needle to turn it into a real book. And then we drew pictures, and she would make up poems for each of the pictures. So I knew how to draw a little goldfish, and I drew drew a goldfish, and then she, I'll never forget that one particular one. It was something about fishy, fishy in the brook, will you bite my little hook? I mean, that was my mom writing that. And um, that whole day we spent just writing that book, one of such a cozy, precious, happy memory. And, of course, she had to work hard because she did, again, we had cows, we had chickens, we had everything in the world for her to do. But that day she just sat and focused on me, and um, it was wonderful. And I think that was probably the genesis of my desire to write. Nice. So as you're going through childhood, you're getting older, becoming a teenager, and then going into adulthood. What what, what were the next steps on your path? Well, when I was 11, my, well, you know, part of, my grandmother got very ill, my father's father, and uh, it was cancer, and there wasn't much to work with around here at that time as far as hospice or anything like that, and so she lived in our home while my mother took care of her, and again, no, no, you know, no bathroom, um, very little to work with, but mom took such exquisite care of her, and so I got to see, I got to see death at an early age, I was nine, and I saw how my parents dealt with it, it was part of life, and so that was one thing that happened, I also, um, it gave me a lot of respect, even at nine, for my mother, that she was that strong, that she was able to do that, um, because she had to take do everything for my grandmother. And even though she was her mother-in-law, my mother never said a word of resentment about it. Um, and after Grandma died, we actually moved into her house, um, and that was interesting. That's where I ended up living the rest of my life, or my young life. It was an 1820s log house hmm. that uh, had been in our gener- in our family for, well, now it's like five generations that it's been in our family. And um, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty scary for a while because it was not in great shape and I could see vines growing through the logs <laughs> and I was definitely afraid of snakes, but uh, Dad fixed it up, and we had a nice home. And so I, I had, I was, ra- I, I used to laugh and say I should become president because I did live in a log, <laughs> in an old log cabin. But uh, when, while I was out there, that was farther away from people. It was a little bit more um, uh, isolated. And I loved the woods. So that had definitely been instilled in me. But dad and mom couldn't always be with me. And so at age 11, my father gave me my own gun. I spent two days training me on it. It was a, it was a rifle. 
Um, he said I was less likely to kill myself with a rifle. And uh, set up targets, made me learn all kinds of safety uh, regulations. And then he told me that I could go anywhere I wanted to and to never point at anything that I didn't want to kill, but that if I had to, to, kill, to shoot to kill. I was a little girl that was going to be wandering around in the woods. He wanted to give me that freedom, but he also wanted me to be safe. And so I think it was one of the more empowering things that my father ever did was to give this little girl, you know, her own gun and to give her the freedom. And uh, so the neighbors that we had, which were pretty far-ranging, um, kind of got a kick out of seeing me wander the woods. But again, that also, um, I had a lot of time to dream. I had a lot of time to climb a tree and just think about things. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of... I don't know, I guess it may be having that kind of time uh, without any sort of electronic intervention um, makes a child make up their own stories. And I was hungry for stories. I could never get enough books. And so I started to make up my own in my own head. And uh, that was certainly good training for what I was going to be doing later on in life. Okay. Yeah, That. That. that's something we've tried to do with our kids and sometimes we succeed in not is giving that freedom to explore and, and, and have that solitude because children are very programmed. So it, it, it's quite a blessing that you had that opportunity to have that solitude and, and just do your own thing. And to have that kind of confidence in me that my father showed. Yeah. That's, that is, so important to a girl, the, the power that a father has in making her feel like she has worth. Great. So as you're getting older, when, when do you, when do you leave the house and where do you go next? I went to college, uh, High Valley Christian College, which was a little Christian school in uh, West Virginia. I went there for a year. Um, there was a boy that I had known in high school that I had a terrible crush on. And uh, he, uh, we had never dated. I just kept waiting, hoping that he would notice me. We were both in band together. And um, I remember thinking... Okay, Serena, so you had, talk, you had talked about you were following a boy that you had a crush on. Well, I, I wasn't following him. <laughs> I was being very um, careful because I just didn't see any way that he could ever fall for me. And so I, I remember watching uh, Steve in high school. He was such a good person and so smart, and everyone loved him. And I remember thinking how lucky any girl would be who could get him, but it wasn't going to be me because I wasn't special enough. But uh, apparently he decided that I was, and he asked me out, and um he was so different from the other, the few other guys that I dated because uh, there's a book called A Room with a View. It's an old book. It's about a woman, I don't know, back in the 1800s who refuses to marry because all the men are so shallow. And uh, what she wanted was a man who being with him was like being in a room with a view. And I remember thinking about that the first date that we had where um, it was so wonderful just to be able to talk with him. And uh, we married when... I was 19 and he was 20. We were babies, but we didn't think we were babies. We thought we were, you know, fully grown and ready to start our lives, and we did. And uh, he died uh, in 2016 from bone cancer, which was um, it's a hard way to go. It's very painful. Um, he had become a minister 
Well, he went to college, and he, he taught college for a while, but uh, his real love was for the ministry. He had a heart for people, and he had a heart for God, and so um, he was a minister for, let's see, well, almost from the time we were married, around 46 years, to one degree to another, and so that was a hard time in my life, um, getting through all that. He was ill for about six years before he died, and Fortunately, well, we lived different places. We lived in Detroit for 18 years and uh, in Nashville. But we had come home. Um, at the time of his death, we had been at my home church for 23 years. And it had grown, and we had gotten back into our lives here in southern Ohio in a very small very small town. It's maybe 500 people total in, in the in the actual town. We have one we have one stoplight. We're real happy with that. We <laughs> we were real proud when we got a light in the in the town. But um, that's what happened next. We he went to graduate school. I helped support him. Um, I took classes from time to time, but I don't have a college education. And um, I guess maybe based on my father. I didn't really feel like I had to. Um, I could always find out what I wanted to know. Um, I haven't really regretted that because I really put my time and effort into being a minister's wife and to raising. We have three sons together and uh, raising them and trying to raise them well. One of the things that helped me um, as, you know, I mean, as a minister's wife, you get to know an awful lot of people in a very intimate way. And I paid a lot of attention to what worked and what didn't. And uh, I'm very proud of my sons. They they have turned into really fine men, and they have strong wives. And uh, I'm very pleased with the way that I'm seeing my grandchildren raised. But, again, when I began to get to know the Amish, um, staying in their homes, watching the interactions between parents and children, so much of what I saw resonated with me as very wise and very intentional. And I think that's one of the terms that um, Paul Stutzman and I used in the book that we co- that he helped me co-author, which is More Than Happy, The um, Wisdom of Amish Parenting, which I, you know, I'd like to talk about why we chose that title later on. But uh, I just saw that an awful lot of things that they were doing was working well. Uh, one of of many things was just a tremendous work ethic that they instill in their children and how that enhances their lives. Um, it's very, as Paul would say, very intentional. It's very intentional parenting. Um, one thing I want to say up front is, is if we talk about the Amish and Amish parenting, they are a very flawed people. Uh, that was one thing that one of the ministers, Amish ministers that I talked to asked me to emphasize. Uh, he said, we are a very flawed people. We are just trying to do the best we can. Uh, and yet what I saw was a great deal of wisdom in spite of that. Well, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the book since since we're here. Uh, I'm, I'm very curious because you, you've, you've been exposed to stories and writing your, your whole life and, and thinking of your own type of stories. What what led you to to write about that topic? What what really sparked that curiosity? Well, um, I had it took me. You know, as you and I were discussing before you began to record, I did not get published by 
a traditional publisher until I was 60 years old. That's when my very first book came out, which was Love Finds You in Sugar Creek, um, an Amish romance novel that was also inspirational. And um, as I worked toward publication, it in general, it takes about 11 years for someone to get to the point that a traditional royalty-paying publisher will, you know, gamble on them. And in the meantime, during those, uh, it took me 10, and during those times, I did publish in some magazines, and I wrote three books. They were Christian Suspense. They were not Amish. I went to conferences. I met with um, agents and editors. One of the things people don't really know about is how you get in front of you know, a, a good publisher, and that's one of the ways, is I would pay my whatever to get into a conference, and with that conference fee, I would get 15 minutes with an agent and with an editor, and during those 15 minutes, I would have a chance to pitch myself and my book, and it's very rigid. There's actually a timekeeper, and when your 15 minutes are, are done, you're done, and what you hope and pray for is that they will ask for a partial of your manuscript or in some cases and you know this would be to be celebrated because it didn't happen very often they might request an entire manuscript so what I had managed to do during that time I had several several times that was just um, just I did just awful and uh, we go uh, cry for a while and then you know pick myself up and decide I'd fight on um, during that time I had managed to get the attention of a very good agent and at that point in time, she began to work with me, and she took my three manuscripts and began to shop them around. Uh, traditional publishers don't really want to have a book just come in, you know, for this lush pile. There's just too many people with manuscripts now. And so the agents became sort of a, a filter. And so she would talk to the editors and say, I've got this new writer, you know, and Anyway, nothing was happening. One day she called me from, she was out in Oregon, and she called me, and she said, Serena, she said, um, I can't sell your, your three suspense at all, but she said, I have found an editor who likes your writing, and she pointed out that your name is Miller, and you live in Ohio, and uh, Amish fiction is uh, really getting, you know, a lot of interest, Hmm. And um, she said that she will take a look at a proposal if you will write Amish. And then my agent said, do you know any Amish people? <laughs> and at the time, I didn't. And I said, well, I don't, but I will go find some. And, <laughs> and so I felt a little sorry for the Amish people because it was like I had to find somebody who would talk to me. And they are not the most easy people to approach, um, to ask them about wanting to write a book, you know, based on their culture. But I was, um, that was in, uh, let's see, September of 2009 when I signed my first contract on the basis of a proposal, just a proposal. I still had to write the book and I had six months to do it. And so my husband and I went to, they wanted it to be based on Sugar Creek. It was part of a series that many authors contributed to called the Love Finds You series. It was a really neat series um, that was based, it's kind of almost a travelogue romance. Uh, there's one called Love Finds You in Hershey, Pennsylvania, or Love Finds You in Paradise, Florida, or, you know, and then with me, it was, um, you know, Love Finds You in Sugar Creek, Ohio. 
So we went up there. I chose a, to stay at a bed and breakfast. I figured I would just do the touristy things. Of course, you know, Sugar Creek is right in the heart of um, the whole Holmes County. Um, it's the largest group of Amish in the world. And so I just chose a bed and breakfast, thought we would do the little touristy things, and maybe, maybe I could get someone to talk to me. But uh, it turns out that it was, in my opinion, a God thing. The bed and breakfast I chose, based on the fact that it was the cheapest one, was a little farmhouse bed and breakfast. A woman by the name of Joanne Ham and her husband Clay ran it. They were actually Texans who had ended up in Sugar Creek and had started this bed and breakfast and had just fallen in love with the Amish community. And they, to supplement their bed and breakfast income, they drove for the Amish. Mm. And they had gotten very close to several old order Amish families. And when she found out what I was trying to do, she said, I can help you. And so instead of doing the touristy things, she set up a, a dinner with my husband and I and this lovely Amish family. Uh, their last name was Miller, too, and the joke became that um, from them that there's only two kinds of people in the world, and that is um, the Millers and then wannabes. <laughs> and they thought that was hilarious. They started calling us cousins after they got to know us well. And, of course, most people know that Miller is the, is the most common name among, among the Amish. But we went over there that evening, and I was just wide-eyed. I, I was so ignorant about the Amish, Ron. I just, I had a lot of preconceived um, ideas that were so wrong, and I was careful. Um, you know, I didn't want to offend anybody. This is a family that had seven children. They were, a lot of them were teenagers, and a whole bunch of teenagers had come over to play volleyball. And even that was a uh, revelation to me. I mean, because it was, the girls were so pretty, and they and they had these different pastel colors on their dresses, and and they were out there just slamming those that volleyball <laughs> as bad as the boys. They they had some strong women in the Amish community, and uh, one of the things that I thought was hilarious is, of course, with the old order Amish, they prefer not to have or they are not supposed to have a phone in their home, and so they will have this phone shanty, you know, down at the end of the driveway uh, with a phone in it. Um, and so we're sitting outside. We were eating outside because it was um, it was hot in the kitchen, and so she had set a table outside. And um, it was a Friday night, and the phone was just ringing off the hook with other teenagers wanting to know where the party was going to be. And what tickled me was it kept ringing, and the father would say, would one of you kids get that? <laughs> and I thought, oh, there's not that big of a difference between uh, us and them when it comes to teenagers. But uh, we got to know each other, and I they knew why I was there, and uh, there was a patriarch there, um, this actually was a larger family and you know the the grandfather was there and he was a patriarch he was the father of 12 children and 73 grandchildren and uh, I, I was asking questions that's what I was there for I was taking notes but I was also apologizing while I did so because I felt like I was just you know really you know I, I just didn't feel good about what I was doing I felt apologetic and finally he stopped me and he said um Serena, he said, there have been a lot of lies um, told about the Amish. And he said, you can ask us anything you want. Nothing is forbidden. All we ask is that you write the truth. Please promise me that you will just write the truth. And I promised him, and I've kept that promise. 
um, it sometimes it's been hard because um, the Amish are not always the fantasy that some people have that love reading Amish novels. But I finally wrote the Love Finds in Sugar Creek, and I, you know, I hoped that the pub- publisher would enjoy it. But the thing I was most worried about was whether or not my Amish friends would approve, and they did. Um, they, uh, I, I guess, the best compliment I've ever had as a writer is when they said, "This is the most accurate portrayal of our culture that we have ever read." So um, that's been my thing, and I, I would say that's one of the things about my writing that I, I'm very, I try very hard to do is to give an accurate portrayal. So we've become very good friends. Um, I stay with them when I go up there, and of course with my background uh, of childhood, um, <laughs> living in a home with, um, you know, um, kerosene lights and uh you know, wood burning stove and and all of that. I, I just feel at home. You know, there's there's not a big stretch for me to um, be in Amish homes, and it's such a lovely experience because at least in the family that I, the families that I have gotten to know and been part of, uh, it's such a peaceful time with the children. The children are very content. The ones that I have seen, and again, I'm only basing it on my experience with several Amish families. Uh, I'm sure there are very dysfunctional families as well. The ones I have seen, I have not experienced that. But the uh, Amish children, the first thing I noticed was their attention spans, how lengthy they were. Um, they, um, I watched a four-year-old just playing with some stones at her mother's feet that evening and just glancing up every now and then to give me a big smile. The other smaller children were seemed to be just happy to be there. I was entertainment. And uh, they thought it was really, I guess, fascinating to have an English woman sitting there uh, talking with them or talking with their mother. And that's the thing that I kept seeing was the, was the contentment. And that's why, well, what happened next was I ended up being picked up by one of the five top uh, publishing companies uh, in New York City, which is Simon & Schuster. And um, they actually, they had, I had a bidding war for my, for my next book. And they wanted um, they wanted me to write a series of three books based on the homage that was fictional, which I did. But as I wrote and those books were published, I became good friends with my editor, uh, Beth Adams, who is a Christian woman who was raising two little girls in New York City. And as we talked about the Amish, this kept coming up, the contentment that I saw in the children. Um, I never saw, I never witnessed a... Amish parent raising their voice to the children, you know, and I was, we were kind of marveling over it, and she said, I'm raising two little girls. She said, I want to know what they know. And so she asked me if I would consider doing the research and writing a book about Amish parenting. And um, she got permission from the, you know, from Simon & Schuster to go ahead and get behind this book. And I spent a year then. Now, I knew Paul Stutzman by that time, who I had met at book signings and who I knew had 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 been raised by Amish parents. And so I asked him if he would co-author it. He did not write it. That was not the intention. What he did was he helped me with the concepts. He helped me with the research. And um, I made, it made... It gave me validity because I am not Amish, um, and, you know, that way I knew that I was writing the truth, and that book has been very well received. Um, I've had, oh, I've had, 
one one Mormon grandmother uh, ordered a case of it uh, to give to all of her children. A lot of grandparents have have asked, you know, for it to send to their grown children as they struggle with raising their children. And uh, it was just recently translated into Korean, of Mm. all things. Um, There was a gentleman who's a Wall Street analyst uh, who is Korean who read it and who um, asked permission to find a publisher for it in Korea because he felt like his country um, needed it. And so that happened on the past few months that it began to be available in Korean. So I don't know, it's kind of taken all on, on a life of its own. And, you know, I'm very grateful. So that's how I got to know the Amish was my agent saying, your name is Miller. You live in Ohio. Do you know any Amish people? And me saying, I will find some. And it has been probably one of the greatest blessings of my life is getting to know these people. That's amazing that there was that, that niche and and that's that's how you got your foot in the door that's that's really neat serena there there is there is a fascination with the amish and i grew up close to holmes county in medina county and they're a thriving community and i was telling someone the other day that every time i i go back up because i live in oxford ohio Every time I go north to, to Medina County to visit family, there, there, I could tell that there's an Amish family that's taken over what what I would call a, a conventional farm. Every time, because I've, I've I've known the area for years, what there's the fascination with the Amish, but what what are they getting right that's allowing them to thrive in today's United States? And again, this was something that Beth and I, that Beth, my editor, wanted to be, wanted me to pay attention to. Um, churches are losing people. Mainline Protestant churches are losing people. Um, you're doing well as a church if you're holding your own. And um, there's a lot, of course, my husband was a minister, and there's a lot of talk and, and, and books being written about what's happening and why it's happening. Um, she wanted me to at least address why the Amish were flourishing, as you're saying. And it's really, it's counterintuitive that they are. I would have assumed that the Old Order Amish would have died out a long time ago. The shocking thing that I found out uh, as I did my research, is that they are retaining, on an average, of anywhere from 86 to 90 percent of their children, and they are doubling uh, every 20 years. As I researched, they are one of the fastest-growing religions, if not the fastest-growing religion in the world. Um, they're retaining uh, something like you know 90 percent. Um, as I looked at the Pew Forum when I was writing this book. Even uh, even the Muslims are retaining something like 76% at that time. Um, and so, why is that happening? And that was something that I really wanted to find out because it's not as though they are forced. This is something a lot of people don't understand. They are not forced to remain Amish, these children. And um, they are not Amish by birth. 
um, that you have to join the Amish church. The line of demarcation for them is baptism. And once you cross over into being a member of the Amish church, at that point, if you stray or do whatever, you know, that you shouldn't do in some way, you can be shunned. And shunning is not nearly as prevalent as what people think because it's been, uh, you know, it's been a big thing with the books and the movies and things like that. But um, what you have instead are all these kids at 16, they are allowed to go in, you know, what's called Rimspringa, which is not really an Amish thing. Um, Paul Stitzman explained that. He said it just, all it means is running around. And he said it's just the kind of thing that happens when you get a teenager, you know, they start running around and visiting with the other kids and, you know, getting to know, uh, you know, kids from other districts and such. But it's it's become kind of a thing in the English mind. But it's still, at age 16, they are allowed some freedom. A lot of the kids, a lot of the kids are, they get driver's license, they um, dress English, they have their period of time that they um, do English things. And, you know, sometimes there's some pretty wild parties, from what I understand, in the barns and stuff that, you know, hundreds of Amish kids will show up for. But the thing that is so amazing is that around the age of anywhere from 20 to maybe 27 or 8 now, uh, my Amish friend was telling me, um, they put that all aside and they sell their car and they climb into a buggy and they accept um, all the things that go along with being Amish. And uh, they marry an Amish girl or boy, and and that's what they do from that point on. Now, why are they doing that? The thing that I kept hearing was the net, the there's such a close network. They have these close families. I don't think it's possible for an Amish person to be homeless because there's too many people in the family to to help take care of them. Uh, Amish people don't go hungry. Uh, there's you know, there's too great of a work ethic. And, you know, of course, they don't take any kind of Social Security. Most of them do not accept Social Security or any kind of government aid, again, most of the time. But um, there is um, there's something about the strength of the community that draws these kids back into it voluntarily. Now, if they were not to become Amish, they would not be shunned. It's only if they have crossed over into that. You know, I know quite a few who chose not to become Amish, but they're still allowed to come into their parents' home and come to weddings and, you know, be part of the of the larger family life. It's never quite as intimate as it is if they're all going to church together. But um, if you're seeing a lot of uh, Amish families coming into your community, that's part of the reason. They're just growing. And, um, in fact, probably about 15 years ago, they began to come into our community about 20, well, probably about 20 miles from me. Um, and it was so fascinating. Um, I mean, this is Appalachia. This is, uh, you know, common knowledge is that it's really hard to find a job around here. But I saw little signs, you know, showing up at the end of driveways saying, we'll upholster anything or uh, eggs for sale or, you know, whatever. And they just made they made jobs for themselves and uh, raised families that way. And, I mean, we love it because they stabilize an agricultural community so well. As you pointed out, they go into maybe an abandoned English farm and they turn it into a showpiece. Right. 
Yeah, that's that, that's a really interesting answer, and yeah, the, the focus of community uh, is there. This seem this may seem like a silly question, but especially in general, the white populations in the United States, the birth rate in families has gone down significantly over the last hundred years. Yeah. It, it, but it, it also seems like the Amish is it, rate is held pretty steadily. So that you talk about the retention of the community, uh, it, it, has the birth rate stayed pretty consistent with the large families? It depends on the sect that you're looking at. There's been studies into that. Um, and when I talk about sex, it's like the conservative versus the more liberal. Uh, real quickly here in Ohio, you would have like the old order Amish, and people have heard about them, know basically what they're like. Um, uh, a, a very, the most conservative Amish sect is the Shorts and Troopers. And I deal with that in my book, An Uncommon Grace. And if someone wants to read that, they would learn a lot about the Shorts and Troopers. They uh, don't allow batteries. They don't allow running water. They, you know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on uh, what they will and will not allow. But they also tend to be the ones with the largest families. It's not terribly unusual for them to have anywhere from 12 to 18 children in one family. <coughs> the Old Order Amish, it's more like 7 to 12. And, again, when you have those kind of numbers and you have a retention rate as high as theirs are, they're going to grow. Um, so that's, yeah, their, their birth rate is, still remains pretty high. And um, it, they don't, to my knowledge, they don't really preach birth control. Um, I did ask that very intimate question with one of my Amish friends. And um, she said that it wasn't something that was preached. She said it's something... They just value children and large families so much. And she said there did come a time when she felt like her family was large enough. And uh, she went to an older woman in the Amish church and that she respected and asked her what she thought about using birth control in the church. And the older woman said she felt like what uh, decision she made was between her and her husband. And that wasn't something that the church needed to weigh in on. And so she limited her family, you know, from that point on. And, you know, so, you know, that's, 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 that's a big part of it. But it doesn't seem to be something that's, that's preached. It's just they love children. And uh, they, they feel like it's their gift, you know, to, from God to have children. And, and because of the way they live, um, Here's something that I that I was envious about the Amish women as I got to know them is how respected um, the mothers and are and the women in the Amish community. That was a surprise to me. I just assumed, you know, that with a with a lot of male leadership emphasis, that they would be downtrodden. I have not personally seen that. What I've seen is women who are valued uh, and respected. Uh, by their husbands and by the other men in, in the church because they see them as the ones that are holding the culture together. Uh, they're the ones that are teaching those children. And so it's a pretty good gig that some of the Amish women that I know have. And so they're able to, their husbands are hardworking. 
They know how to be frugal. I've never seen an unfrugal Amish woman. And yet, you know, they make, some of them make very good livings, but um, they're able. They have the luxury of being able to stay home and raise those children. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I think we are kind of forced to limit our families to what we do because it's just so hard to raise a child when both parents are working full-time. And it's done, and it's done well in some cases, but it is hard. And it's not nearly as hard for the Amish women because not only do they get the luxury of being able to stay home, now all of them do something. You know, they're always, they're, they're business women. You know, they have all kinds of things that they, that they make money with, and that is supported as well. But uh, in in general, they don't have to, and so anyway, that's I think that's that's one of the reasons. Okay, uh, so if I heard you right, you had your first your first book was published in two thousand nine. Is that correct? And actually, I I signed the contract in two thousand nine, and then okay. it was published in two thousand ten. Okay, so two thousand ten. Looking yes. at your website, I counted 24 books. <laughs> 24? Um, I think you're counting some short stories, too. I actually okay. have 16 full-length okay. novels out. Uh, full-length books out. Regardless of the number, 16 or 24, in, in a period <laughs> of nine and a half, ten years, that's amazing. What What's your process? My process? Um, it's messy. First of all, I love the process of writing, and that's very helpful. I love every aspect of it. I love the research. I love conceiving the ideas, creating the characters. Um, I love the editing process. Um, so that's part of it. Um, you know, I don't. I have. I have. My three sons live very close to me. Um, we're a close family. The grandchildren are here. People are. We had a guest the other day that was here, and and they're like, you know, the door is opening constantly with people coming and going, and so I can't have just a real ironclad schedule. Um, I write in bits and pieces as I can, and it's a messy process, but for some reason it seems to work for me. So. In in these books that you write, when when you sit down, what do you do? Do you do a draft? Do you do a mind map? How, how do you how do you develop the the big picture of the story before you flesh out the details? What I don't. Um, there's about three different ways that a person people's minds are just built differently. Mm-hmm. Some are very, very good at outlining. One of my writer friends uh, who's very successful, she doesn't begin to write until she's got a full outline out and she knows what she is going to write every day. Um, If I tried to do that, and I have tried to do that, my mind would just shut down. Uh, The creative process for me has to be a lot more free than that. Then you have other people that they we just call them seed of the panthers. They just start in with a word and they just keep piling words on and telling the story and the story grows. And um, a very famous author who does that is Dean Koontz, who writes mysteries and he's a brilliant writer, but he never really knows what he's going to be writing about until he sits down and starts the first words. Um, I can't do that either. What I do is something that I, I just call quilting. I, I do scenes as they occur to me uh, out of sequence, and 
um, until it, it's kind of a discovery draft. My creative mind doesn't work very well unless I'm actually engaged in the writing itself. And so I will start out writing, and then the subconscious opens up and all the characters and dialogue and everything begins to spill out. And I will write out a sequence, and then when I finally finish and feel like I have a complete story, I'll begin what feels like a quilting process. I will actually take all these, um, I always have them on three-by-five cards, and different colors for, you know, male, female. Um, I'll have different themes, like the mystery theme, this, the inspirational theme, that sort of thing, or in my historicals, the historical themes. And then I will just start putting them out. I have a wall, and I, <laughs> it's very basic. I use scotch tape and a blank wall, and I start putting them out and trying to get them in order and trying to get them into the three-act, you know, type order that fiction writers try to use. And then I take all of that, and I sit down, and I begin to stitch it together. And then, of course, there's um, handing it to my first readers and finding out what works and what doesn't work, and uh, then the final, final edit, which actually the final edit I think is the thing I love the most is uh, just just really tidying it up and polishing it and paying attention to the words and paying attention to a lot of people who are not professional writers don't realize the impact that just the right verb can have. And that was one of the first things I learned when I began to try to write professionally is just you have to pay so much attention just to the verbs uh, to make the um, book sparkle. And, and of course, I'll you know, check the historical accuracy and the geographical accuracy. My books, um, most all of them have been based on a real place, and I like to get the um, streets correct. And in fact, Sugar Creek, which is one of, you know, the most popular books that I have because the movie was based on it, uh, there actually is where the old Bed and Breakfast Inn is. There's a there's an empty field there. And I just, in my book, filled it up with a with an inn. So you can go and look at where, you know, the old Amish ants you know, had their bed and breakfast. Uh, the movie director, in fact, talked about how nice it had been when they came to Sugar Creek because everything was accurate and he, he didn't have to uh, find places. The places were already there in the book. Can you speak to that process of, of a book becoming a movie? How, how did you get contacted and then where did it go from there? Um, that's, uh, what happened to me is not the normal process. I found out two weeks before filming began that there would be a movie. Um, the book at that time was owned by Guidepost. And, you know, it was contractually they owned it, and I just got royalties from it. And I fell through the cracks. The guidepost didn't contact me to tell me there was a book, and the producers uh, didn't call me to tell me because um, they thought guidepost had. And because they did own the book, I didn't even, they didn't even need my signature for anything. And so the book, or, had, or the movie had been in pre-production for a year before I found out about it. And I found out about it accidentally. A library up in the Sugar Creek area, a librarian called me and said, uh, will you come up and talk about, you know, the movie that's going to be based on your book? <laughs> and I said, what movie? And uh, so then I called. I found out, um, you know, some more. I started looking it up on the Internet and saw where this, because the title was the same as the book, and saw where it had been in pre-production. I called Hollywood and 
said, um, are, are you are you guys uh, producing a movie called Love Finds You at Sugar Creek? And I said, yes. And I said, would anyone like to talk to me? I'm the author. <laughs> and at that point, the producer got personally got involved, and, and the, he and the director met me up in Sugar Creek, and we had a long conversation, and um, they had read the book and wanted to ask me questions about it. They were delighted that I had come, and they told me that if I wanted to come and be on the set and watch you know, the filming, that I could do so. Um, the director said, just as long as you don't correct me on anything in front of the actors. Now, I was still, uh, when I first heard about it, I thought, okay, a movie, yeah, right. Um, it's going to be two guys in ponytails and bucket stocks with a bar camera. It's not going to be anything because it's my book. But then I found out that Kelly McGillis was one of the uh, stars. And, of course, she was in Witness and Top Gun and mm -hmm. just an excellent actress. And at that point, when I saw that um, online, I burst into tears because I knew she would not be part of a movie that would be uh, that would be bad. Uh, she just wouldn't. And getting to meet her was so much fun. Uh, she's an amazing actress, but she's not a prima donna. She, she works hard. Uh, Sarah Lancaster was uh, a delight. Tom Everett Scott is the nicest guy. And, of course, the little boy that played Bobby had never acted before, but he was just a natural. And uh, I did get um, the producer absolutely insisted that I have a cameo. And so I did have four words that I had to say at the very beginning of the movie. I'm a cashier. And I had to say the words, it's right back there. They asked me what the bathroom is. And they uh, had this happen in a real store there in Sugar Creek. They had to just shut everything down, you know, customers and everything while I did my part. There's cameras. There's lights. There's, you know, two dozen people standing around waiting for me to get everything right. And I found out then that I was never destined to be an actress <laughs> because it took something like 13 takes. Um, I dropped it. Tom Everett Scott has to give me some money, and I get back change, and I put something in a bag, and I drop the bag, and I drop the change, and I jammed up the cash register, and I said the wrong words, and it was just a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so I am in the movie, but it was not easy. But uh, something interesting later on, um, now Tom Everett Scott was the lead in the movie, um, That Thing You Do, that was probably one of the biggest ones that he's been in. Gorgeous man, uh, and such, again, such a nice person that later on that day, we were at the ballpark where another scene was being shot, and Tom was just sitting there in the stands, and I was too, and I said, you know, Tom, I said, until that moment of filming, I had no idea how hard it is what you do. I said, um, I said, you make it look so easy, and he said, Serena, he said, I wish more people um, had had that experience. Because he said, maybe if they did, if they knew what you knew, they would be so hard on us. And uh, it was a sad statement. And I thought, these people work hard. And uh, the ones that I was with, even the, not just the actors, but the cast, the, the crew, uh, they worked so hard. And um, one of the older women there, the makeup artist, who was about my age, she said, Serena, she said, they're all kids, and she said, they all uh, come from something. She said, so many of them are just kind of beat up, but this is what they have to give. And so it gave me an enormous appreciation of what actors and actresses try to do, and it did turn out just beautifully. But it, it won the Epiphany Award for 2000, 
13, I think, or 14, as the best uh, family-friendly movie, uh, TV movie. And so I was real happy about that. I got a nice big trophy and everything. Uh, But the other movie, An Uncommon Grace, which was done by Hallmark, I was not part of that. My husband was literally dying during the uh, filming of that, so I was not on on set and really could have cared less, but the movie did turn out very, very well. Okay, good. I I, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Uh, that was such a neat story. Uh, oh, I know what it was now. So, one thing that's one thing that impressed me when I was looking at your book. So, you you kind of got you you broke in using the Amish setting, but you you've, you've got a wide variety of genres now. How would you explain those to the audience? And then, if you could also talk about your latest book series. Uh, well. Love Find You in Sugar Creek, my agent called and said uh, Baker Books is interested in your work and they would like to know if you have any ideas for a historical series. And it turns out that there had been a story that had been bubbling for a long time. As I said before, my father was a sawyer. He went out into the woods and, you know, he cut down trees and turned them into lumber. And um, He had always been fascinated with the uh, with the old-time lumber camps up in Michigan. He had heard stories about the giant trees and everything that they had up there. And so as we lived in Michigan and went on vacations with the boys, um, I would take them to lumber camp museums because I was interested in it. And a story had been bubbling for a long time about uh, I'd seen a a photo in one of the museums of this rough-looking lumber camp group of men. And right in the middle of it was this small, very sweet-faced cook, the lumber camp cook, and I wished I knew her story, and I didn't, they didn't even have a name for any of this, it was just a random photo, but um, I began to create a story about a woman who escapes, basically, from an abusive husband into this lumber camp, and the thing that was interesting to me is the lumber camp cooks got twice the amount of pay that the men did, because these lumberjacks went wherever the best food was. Hmm. So if the lumber camp operator could get a really good cook, uh, he knew he was going to get the best axman. And because food was so important to them, they treated the lumber camp cooks so well. I read a lot of accounts by women who had been cooks, and that was one of the things that kept coming up was how gallant and chivalrous chivalrous and, um, and protective the men were of her. And so that's where the story came from. I began to write about Katie Calloway. The name of the book is The Measure of Katie Calloway, and it tells about her uh, track into the into the uh, post-Civil War lumber camps of Michigan. And Michigan was the lumber capital of the world in the post-Civil War era, and it was a very specific culture and a very interesting time, and I put an enormous amount of research into it, and I loved every minute of it. So um, and that is the book that won the Vita Award. Then the next book in that series is um, Blackberry Moon, which it follows a young Native American woman who uh, became part of the camp and her, uh, you know, her journey. And that one, um, that was a finalist in the Christie Awards. 
And then the third book in the series is Promise to Love, and that is the story of the 1871 forest fire that took place in Michigan, and it follows um, a Michigan dirt farmer and his um, and his wife and their and their their story. And uh, it's I read an awful lot of newspaper articles from that era. That that was that was an amazing event um, that happened because there was so much brush from and treetops and everything from all the lumbering that had laid there and become dry and then there was a drought in 1871 that went from like May until October and so when they don't know for sure how it started some people think it was a comet but uh, it burned all the way from you know the west coast to the east coast mm. and so reading about I mean the fire isn't the whole thing the love story is the thing but uh, I, I, I think the part about the fire is just fascinating and that one uh, American Christian fiction award for one year but so I have the three historicals out well then um, I was writing so fast and so hard and my husband was so sick and I got writer's block um, I, I finished my my last you know my my deadline and I hadn't signed any more contracts and I just stopped I couldn't write anymore and I really wondered if I would ever write again. Writer's block really is very real. I used to think it wasn't, but it was. And I was despairing. Um, I loved to write, but I couldn't make myself write. And I took a train trip down to Arkansas to help care for a relative. And as I was on the train, one of my friends was texting me, and she said, you need to write a book about, about being on a train. And I'm like, um, I don't think I'm going to do that. But uh, she, she laughed, and she said, well, you could... Uh, call it Murder on the Texas Eagle. That was the trip that I was on, the, mm. the train that I was on, which, of course, was a was a joke from Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. And so we laughed about it. And then I sat there, and as the wheels began to turn, the, you know, I mean, the, the railroad, the rhythm and all that, there was this voice that started coming to me. And it was the voice of a old, opinionated um, Kentucky woman, a uh, woman in her 70s who... And she became a sleuth in my mind. She was. Um, she ended up being the heroine in uh, a whole series of short stories called The Accidental Adventures of Doreen Sizemore. And she's from South Shore, Kentucky, and she doesn't want to leave Kentucky, but she has all these relatives that, you know, need her help, and there's always a dead body <laughs> that she has, has to discover. And the thing that is, is I was I was writing on a yellow legal pad. I hadn't even taken my computer with me. Um, and I've learned since then that that's a good way to break writer's block is just to change the venue with which you write. Hmm. And so I was writing on a yellow legal pad, and I just started playing. And, it, you know, it's the kind of thing, what I do now compared to what I used to do through most of my life when I would write my little unpublished stories and stuff it's kind of like the difference between playing sandlock, sandlot baseball versus playing in the big leagues. You know, I, I had fun with my stories before I became a published writer. Afterwards, there was so much pressure, and, and people, um, I felt like the world was reading over my shoulder. And that night on the train, I rode through the night, and it was fun for the first time. And I've learned since then that, uh, and been taught since then by others who have gone through this, that the most important thing an author can do is to just take everything away, to forget that anyone's going to ever read this, and just have fun. Because when it stops being fun, you stop writing. 
And so I wrote that story, and I, you know, I mean, it wasn't serious. It wasn't serious writing. It was just me having fun. And, but with Amazon, you know, you can pretty much publish anything. So my son, who's kind of a computer guru, he went ahead and just put it up. We didn't advertise it. All I did was make it available. Basically, I told some of my close friends that I had a funny story online if they wanted to read it. Um, and so they did, but then they told other people, and other people started reading it, and other people wanted to hear more stories from Doreen. So every now and then, if I start feeling like the pressure's too great, I'll, I'll kind of uh, shuck out another Doreen story. And, uh, and, and that's how that started. But then that, that's just kind of my own selfish, you know, little thing that I do. But then something else happened. The latest series, and I, if we can, I just really want to talk about it for a few minutes. Because sure. I'm so excited about it. The latest series is neither historical, well, it has become historical, but it's, it's contemporary about a lighthouse in, um, in, in Canada. It's based on, we used to vacation on Manitoulin Island when the boys were small. And as, you know, I, I found out something fascinating to me was in the 1800s, there were a lot of light keepers were women. They were widows of light keepers and they were daughters of light keepers, of light keepers. And the light keepers would die and then there would be a um, wife or a daughter <coughs> who would sometimes be allowed to take over because they had already knew how to help. They already knew the routine. And so both the Canadian government and the United States government um, paid them, and they got the same amount as um, man like Keeper would get, and this is in, you know, the 1800s. The lives of those women just fascinated me because some of them ran the lighthouse, which was very labor-intensive, and raised large families. Um, but anyway, so I began a story, not a historical, but about a great-great-granddaughter of one of those valiant women, and uh, her name is Mariah. The, the book series is called Mariah's Lighthouse, and she's a girl who's a very handy person. She helps run a primitive fishing camp on Manitoulin Island, but her dream is to repair the lighthouse where her grandmother had worked, and that had been in their family for many years. But in the 1960s, most of the lighthouses were decommissioned and replaced with a light pole. And Mariah wants to be able to purchase the lighthouse and repair it. And on the Canadian side, in the past, a lot of the lighthouses have been destroyed so that the, um, so the government doesn't have to take care of them. And she's wanting to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so there's a whole love story built around that. I've got uh, three contemporary books that, you know, it's a series. But then I really had fun last year. I wrote the history. I kept wanting to write her grandmother's story. And so the name of it is Eliza's Lighthouse, and it tells about her great-great-grandmother and how she became the keeper of the lighthouse. And there's a mystery that goes all the way through it. And um, I have a good friend who lives in on Manitoulin Island, 
<clears throat> who has a lot of roots there, and she sent me a lot of the historical information that I needed. And so there's actually, it's a four-book series now, with the last one being historical. I, I intend to continue to do that. There is, and I can't talk about it because I haven't gotten the contract signed yet, and I'm not allowed to talk about it until then, but there it has been green-lighted for another movie, and uh, hopefully that one will come out and... It hasn't been filmed yet, but hopefully that one will come out next year. Uh, summer of 2020 is when it's slated to come out. So hoping that that will happen, too. I might even get a third movie, Ron. I can't hardly believe it. Wow, that's amazing. If the audience wanted to learn more about your work, could you talk about your website and what they'll find there? Yes, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. My website is... SerenaBMiller.com. B is in boy because my maiden name was Bonzo of all things. <laughs> I've taken. I took a lot of kidding about that when I was a kid. But SerenaBMiller.com. And uh, my son is my webmaster. He's actually my my business partner now. She helps with marketing and and everything else. And um, and he's. I think he's done a pretty good job of getting all my books up there. And so my, my books are available everywhere though. Um, I, the thing about about brick and mortar bookstores is they can't keep books on the shelves very long. Uh, we laugh and say that cottage cheese has a longer expiration <laughs> date than what our books have. Um, they have to keep them turning over. So you can't always just go to a bookstore and, and find my books, but, uh, they will order them for you. And then if <clears throat> you like using online, you can get it anywhere. They're all, uh, Kindle as well as, you know, uh, or their ebooks as well as hard copy and uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, Kobo, I'm everywhere. Uh, so it shouldn't be too hard to find me. Okay. Oh, and one other thing, yes. I will be, uh, I think the next time that I will be public, because I, I do do book signings and speaking engagements. The next time I'll be public is August 2nd in Shipshawana. There's going to be a whole group of us Amish authors there who will be signing and, you know, having piles of books and stuff. And someone listening might want to take a little trip over there and enjoy Shipshawana. And, and I'll have more information about it on my website. Okay, great. Well, Serena, if you can hold the line while I sign off here. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, really my encourage- pleasure. Really encourage the audience to go to Serena's website and, and learn about her work. And hopefully there's a book or two or 16 that spark your interest. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was episode 69 with author Serena Miller. Thank you for listening and have a great day.